Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going very well as well. We hope it's going very well for everybody else. If this is the first time you're tuning in, be sure to check out all the content we put out there on the internet. Go to my Twitter at Focused Compound and hit that follow button. Uh, that's the best place to get everything that we put out there into the world. You can go to FocusedCompound.com to get access to um, stock write-ups. Jeff, any uh, plans to do any stock write-ups in the near future? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. So if yeah. you want to uh, be on the lookout for that, go to FocusedCompound.com. If you're interested in our investing services, hit that Invest With Us tab and you can learn a little bit more about that. Yes, we do manage capital. Um, uh, through a managed accounts arm and a fund arm. Uh, to be an investor in the fund, you do need to be a qualified investor. But if you're interested in all of that uh, investing related, you can reach out to me at andrew at focuscompound.com. So in today's podcast, we are going to be doing a snap judgment uh, episode where we basically take some stocks on Twitter, put them in quick FS, and give just some high-level overviews of things that stick out to you. Of course, we don't know the names as much as the people that are probably, uh, at least, uh, don't know them as much as people that are asking. But I think a lot of people like to look just or like to hear your first initial thoughts and kind of how you start to frame um, an investment. Um, so the first one, here you go. Quick postmortems on Cool, K-E-W-L, and Hunter Douglas. Yes. So, so he, this gentleman yeah. gave a very nice shout out to you, hashtag Jeff, uh, for being the one that uh, I did retweet it. Basically put him on to Hunter Douglas. And I think Cool as well. I don't want to take credit for that. But I know he did say Hunter Douglas. Okay. Yeah. I retweeted it. Yeah. So a long time ago, I wrote a report on Hunter Douglas. Uh, one of our biggest risks was uh, management will try to take this company out. Yeah. Actually, that I think was our biggest risk. They will eventually. And they I don't did. know what happened. I'm positive I retweeted it. And they did try yeah. to take it out. And they At what prices? failed. Mm-hmm. A variety of different prices. Over the years, they bought it out and stuff, uh, bought back stock, and had gotten to a point where they owned almost 90% of the securities they needed, a little over 90% or something. It, technically, Dutch company, but they're, they switched their incorporation to a sort of overseas territory thing, probably for reasons that would help them kind of squeeze out the other shareholders. They had preferred stock. Also, I think probably it's a complicated reason, but I think that by owning all the preferred stock that can be counted for certain things to help squeeze out the shareholders because it's technically equity, even though it's very different from the um, common stock, things like that. So they were trying to take it private over and over again, but they were cheap. They didn't want to offer a high price for it, which, you know, I respect that they're in the company cheaply and stuff and made money Mm -hmm. for shareholders for a lot of years. Uh, And then they try, they made an offer which didn't quite succeed um, at, a, as we said, a much lower price. And then the stock went up from there, actually. So what was it? The uh, 3G made an offer at, what, about a 60% premium? Yeah. Yeah. And that actually was, that price had risen beyond the attempted takeover price. Yeah. So they tried to take over, take, take out the minority shareholders. They wouldn't all agree to sell. Stock went up a bunch after that. So far beyond the, uh, the original planned... T- uh, offer price and then you know uh, 3g uh, said that they would do it at a much higher price so in total we're t- i don't know if it's double or something the price that people originally were talking about um buying as a buyout price or whatever but it's a lot higher like you said it's 60 percent over what the stock price was and the stock price had already run up a bunch from then um it's not a crazy price for 3g 
and the family uh, will get to keep what twenty five percent. That was like twenty and twenty five. Yeah, of the equity. Obviously, the enterprise value will change. Keep quite the a culture bit. in place, stuff yeah, like that's what they said. The, yeah, but of course, the keep enterprise the family value, members, you know, their insurance and their them on the payroll. You know, the, the enterprise value will change quite a bit because there'll be a lot of debt used with it. I'm sure, um, but it's not crazy. You know, if we take the annualized EBITDA recently or something, this is not. Uh, actually, this is what old style IP, uh, LBOs were done at and stuff. I'm, I'm going to guess it's you know not a lot more than eight times or something like that. And I know that people have been getting loans to leverage up companies of this similar uh, characteristics as this company at say six times. So you don't need a lot of equity if you're doing that. And you know, you know, they'll have 25% of the equity, but the equity might be less than 25% of the um, capitalization. So, um, and. Cool, QAnon Land Association uh, also agreed to be sold, which had been their plan for a long time uh, to try to sell themselves. Now, a little more complicated. The stock still exists uh, because it owns mineral rights. Um, copper basically is the the um, it owns you know mineral rights in general, but copper. Uh, I, related to the original properties that they own. So so the company originally owned 400,000 acres. When it sold off acreage, it kept the mineral rights. And as a result, um, it ended up with a lot of mineral rights. There were some plans to um, mine on the property, and uh, those have kind of moved along, and they bought up some more mineral rights at a higher price near it to get more of an overall interest in the plan project. So obviously, price of copper has been up a bunch. Um, if you, well, I was going to say, uh, there, you can tell the price of copper has been up a bunch. It's had effects on different companies. Uh, we mentioned once before, like Encore Wire, which is in McKinney um, here in Texas. Uh, they their stock is I don't know tripled or something probably because they uh, are middleman where they buy copper and then they they put it into wire, they make it into wire and then they sell it and they get a spread on that. So you can see that things like that have gone crazy. Likewise, probably projects to mine copper in the U.S. have become a lot more serious considerations. So Cool decided to keep that part of their business as a public company. I don't know if they'll eventually sell that out or what, but it, this stuff is very tax efficient for them. So interestingly, the price that they got was a hundred. You know, with the plan distribution so the distribution there's initial distribution that happened that was a lot and there's a second plan distribution i'm adding them both up together assuming the second plan distribution will happen within about a year this is required to meet certain requirements about when you liquidate a major part of your business to make it tax efficient for your shareholders um that price actually is the price that the selling shareholders will get but the buyers actually are effectively paying a much higher price because they're doing it in a way that does not avoid taxes. Uh, it, they considered structuring in a way that would avoid taxes, and um, they didn't do it. And so, in a sense, the real value that this shows of what their timberland is worth and stuff, you have to kind of take almost a middle value. It's true that they were willing to sell at this price of 100 some a share. Uh, what is that? About like $1,000 an acre or something. Um, but uh, it, it's not um, true that the buyer was able to, that the buyer was only willing to pay this low. The buyer was actually willing to pay a lot higher because when you factor in taxes and stuff, the buyer's effectively paying a price that's, you know, close to 30% higher. Yeah, 20 to 30% higher. So a lot higher. 
Um, so it's somewhere in that range. Um, you know, we knew what it was appraised for. And once the market became hotter again for Timberland, then they're able to make a sale. They planned a lot of things with that. Um, Hunter Douglas, they had an upturn in their business, uh, sort of like the car dealers did in Cambria, then was bought out. And with an upturn in the business and with available um, capital, you know, for doing LBO type things, a deal could be worked out. The always the issue with Hunter Douglas, of course, is that you were going to get a much worse price if it was the family as the buyer and you as the seller than if you could somehow get the family to sell out with you. Mm-hmm. And this works out an arrangement where the family mostly sells out with you. So what do you think 3G is going to do? Go in there and just fire everybody? Um, Cut costs like crazy? I don't know. I, I don't think it will be a particularly, you know, I might eat these words and we'll see them in bankruptcy eventually or whatever, but I don't think it'll be a particularly difficult uh, LBO type transaction. I think this one is the price and the possibilities are pretty good. Uh, Hunter Douglas actually has bought up quite a lot of stuff that I don't think is well reflected in the market's appraisal of their value or in their results since the previous um, housing boom. So they have lost a little market share, I think, in some cases in the U.S. at least, Um, although that may be because of popularity of different kinds of things, shutters and stuff like that, instead of um, curtains and shades. But I think overall, they own some stuff, distribution stuff. They're very good vertically integrated. There's probably a lot of things you could squeeze in terms of efficiencies. Um, It's a nice setup for a a, a private equity type thing, I think. Um, Next one, ARC, free cash flow cigar, but specialized printing for architects. Yeah, American Repographics or whatever. Large insider ownership and purchasing. Just announced a two and a half times increase on dividends. Durable business due to bread and butter revenue is with hospitals and government, right. which have contract obligations to print versus digital. You could pull it up, uh, ARC. Uh, yeah. I've looked at it many times. Park document know, I, I've thought about it. Um, it is definitely very attractive on a free cash flow type basis. It is shrinking. Um, but it's shrinking in a way that's very good for shareholders. It has some... We don't want to misstate it. What do they say the EV is and stuff, just so I understand this? EV to sales, 0.6. Yes. EBIT, 4.7. I would say there might be some... I feel like a lot of times when you see businesses like this, you'll be like, wow, it looks kind of cheap. And then you see like market cap is $156 million and the EV is like four to $500 right. million. So they have ton some, of debt. I believe they have some uh, leases for capital equipment that I don't know if this is capturing. Um, yeah, yeah, so long-term debt, capital leases, yeah. Um, but let's go to free cash flow. This is a very, very cheap company and it's being run for free cash flow purposes as you can see so that's pretty remarkable so in 2020 they did almost uh, they did 48 million in free cash flow right mm-hmm. and what is their market cap right now we just said 100 something what was it 160 yep yeah 160 million it's that's, we could take the ev 170 million whatever so in three and a half years you'll have been completely paid back for this one if they use it to buy back stock and stuff now they bought back a little bit of stock mostly they've uh, paid down debt, right, recently? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they'd have to switch from doing that to either buying back stock or paying out dividends. Um, oh, yeah. So there you go. Well, it kind of looks interesting. They've really delevered. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I've watched this company for a little while thinking about this. It is a declining business that's going to keep declining. 
Um, they can do other things, and they'll try to do some other things. You could go to quarterly so we could see the most recent balance sheet. But it's not bad. Um, what's this goodwill? Oh, they they it's a roll-up type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... If you look, um, so their liabilities are long-term. Um, they have $173 million in total liabilities, which is a lot more than their current assets of $113 million. But that's a year of generating free cash flow. It is a little bit more financially risky than it appears, I would say, because long-term debt in the leases on a company that's shrinking like this, I don't like that as much as, you know, we've mentioned the balance sheet of like a NACO or whatever. I, I would say that if your company is shrinking in that, category is going away and all that over time no matter what i i do like a a better balance sheet than what they have although their balance sheet is fine um and anyone for a normal business would say it's it's great uh you do see that what like gross profit is a pretty good measure of business size and stuff it has declined in 2016 2017 2018 i guess it ticked up but 2019 2020 and you know 2021 it's declined by a meaningful amount in each year They've still produced plenty of free cash flow and stuff. I think it's being run well for a declining business. I don't know what their plans are, but it is being run the right way for shareholders for a declining business. It produces a ton of free cash flow. This is a very classic value stock type thing. As I say, this looks like a fund is controlling this company in the way that they're allocating the capital. Yes. Yep. This is what probably some companies inside Berkshire look like. You know, we don't see them, Mm -hmm. but as their business starts to decline and stuff, they basically cut and liquidate and whatever and take that money and put it to other good use inside Berkshire. It's not how most public companies work. They try to figure out something to do to grow in a different way and whatever. It's very interesting. I recommend everyone look at it. I'm not going to recommend, you know, everyone go out and buy it. But it's also pretty liquid and stuff, right? In terms of being able to get the stock, if I remember right. Market cap, yeah, it's it's declined a lot over the past 10 years. Let's see. Yeah, the shares turn over a lot, it looks like. Yeah. So you can get your hands on plenty of stock. Um, it's one to look at and think seriously about. You got to learn about management, learn about their plans. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, I think it's really declining and will continue to decline. So in the last podcast, somebody asked the last five minutes on a stock. Yeah. So you just framed an interesting investment right. case right here. What we would want to do is speak to management. Probably, yeah. Management's pretty vocal on this one, as I recall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can get some. They do express themselves. Um, and, you know, what they're doing, I like, basically. They may be over... I mean, if you look at margins, we were just talking about Alibaba, right? Yeah. And how it grew a lot and yet margins shrunk and stuff. Here you have a company that's declining constantly and yet margins that were able to hold up on some stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that's pretty nice when you have, um, you know, your, what, sales decline by, uh, let's see, from... Well, sales have been pretty stable recently, I guess. But especially if we look at cash flow numbers, um, you have done a very good job for the last three or four years of managing a business that's bit, your industry's in decline. Let's put it that way. Whether mm. we're business is decline, whatever. But your industry's in decline, but you're managing pretty well. I mean, your cash flow from operations and everything is similar in recent years to what it was 10 years ago or something when you were a much bigger company, right? Mm. So uh, they've handled it very well. They've been dealt a really bad hand, though. Sure. So, you know, I don't know which wins out, but it's very interesting. Everyone should look at it. Very cheap. In theory, it could pay down its debt and pay you back within three to five years. Uh, so, uh, Next one, Carmart. Jeff wrote an article about it a while back. 
seems like a compound. I want to look at the chart. I remember looking at it last year and with used cars just going haywire. I thought I was surprised that this stock wasn't up more. Okay. Let's take a look. Let's see. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So not even back to pre-COVID peak, it looks like. Let's put it in. That's pretty impressive. Um, Yeah, I have looked at it recently because I did think it was cheap on that basis. So it's a highly cyclical company. I feel the cyclicality generally has to do with competition in the industry. There are some other factors that people look at it in terms of charge-offs and things like that. Obviously, charge-offs have gone to virtually nothing. And one quarter on an they were down to uh, you know less than 5% or something of a rate. That was the very best quarter, though, um, of a rate that normally would be at about 25%. We'd be having um, these uh, default defaults and then things like that. Um, so they end up repossessing a lot of cars, obviously, because these are super subprime type lending things. Um, but with stimulus and all that there wasn't a problem and then the charge offs are so low because then even if you have to repossess a car obviously the car's value may have increased 30 percent or something with yeah. these car prices yeah so it's like uh, please let me repossess it please yeah um but then you know with covid and with stimulus checks people had uh, more of an opportunity to pay for things probably they couldn't spend on as much stuff they have money coming to them. And what's the most important thing in your life is your car during COVID um, to get around and, you know, without public transportation and all that. So anyway, they're in rural areas, but same idea. Um, it's interesting. There are little things that worry me. They have kind of mentioned that they're going to be, they're going to think of themselves more of a sales type organization instead of a collections type organization. I think they may have used those exact words. <laughs> so that does worry me a little. It's true that they haven't because kept of the sort culture of market share. Yeah. Just uh, like because of that who comes serving. with being a sales type organization. Right. Well, well, they're selling cars. Generally, how they've made a lot of how they've had a lot of success is selling cars to people who need basic transportation. So these could be pretty old cars in not great shape, not the best looking things, not the most popular models and everything. And to some extent, you could hope if people didn't get divorced, sick, or lose their job, that they could try very hard to pay on the car, despite the fact that the payments were really seriously difficult to make versus their income. Like the 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 debt, um, the the payment levels were very high as a percentage of their uh, take home pay. So, but they would try really hard. Um, and especially in rural areas, I also think you didn't have a problem with really bad selection, adverse selection in terms of the reasons why the people were in financial straits. I don't think the model works as well in urban areas. There are companies that do operate in urban areas. I think, um, what are they like, uh, Bridgecrest finance, right? Which is, um, what do they operate their stores under? Um, anyway, there's like drive time and things like that. Um, but I don't think it's a great model for CarMart. I think it's riskier. Uh, rural cities and things like that. So I know that's like an oxymoron, but that's the kind of thing that they want to be in. Uh, small city type things that have nothing around them. They're not metro areas. Um, you know, by us, the kind of thing I mentioned is Durant, Oklahoma. That's where you want to be. You want to be in Durant. You don't want to be in DFW. Um, they started in Arkansas. Actually, they basically started around where Walmart started. So... I do worry about the sales culture thing. I understand why they're doing it. They don't have, they've, if you kind of think about, it, especially bringing in new customers and stuff, they've been losing out to others recently. So 
a lot of people have gotten into the industry. A lot of larger banks and things have funded a lot of people in the industry. It's not securitized. That's something that's very important to know about this company. So it borrows money from a bank um, or from a fund or whatever, but you know, it needs to find someone to borrow to allow it to leverage up. I mean, it leverages at about the same rate that progressive leverages. Progressive uses leverage the same sort of way. And so it probably will borrow about a third. I don't know about the debt to equity. It might be 30% debt to equity or something. But what tends to happen is that it borrows about a third of the um, receivables, the loan portfolio it has. So it has to use shareholder money, in effect, for about two-thirds and then use um, outside money for the other part of it. As a result, it can be a compounder because it can achieve levels of like 15% or so returns, even if it only is getting 10 or so type returns uh, if it had to own the loan fully. Um, if we look at the quick FS. So when you say they don't securitize it, can you explain that for the listeners? They retain all the risk. Yeah, so they don't yeah. offset it and sell it to investors. Or no, so or almost banks. everyone who's in this kind of business normally, especially in larger volume and more prime customers and things, um, they... There's different ways in which they do it. They may create a loan and hold it momentarily and then on a wholesale thing, sell it and stuff. Or there may be a blanket type operation in which basically they're writing conforming loans to something. This is like, um, what is it called? Uh, credit acceptance, right? So they're basically doing a system in which dealers are able to make a loan uh, right away and their entire portfolio can be covered under this basis instead of like technically having to purchase each individual loan um, but then they have to make loans that fit uh, the requirements that credit acceptance would have and then there's certain things about like bonus type payments to you over time or clawbacks or something similar things are done with employees at america's car mart although it's within the company that have to do with like tying certain payments to either for buyers the the car and how the car performs and for um people making loans to the performance of the loan because those are two assets that matter to Carmart. um so with Carmart, uh you could see their revenue is up a bit and stuff they haven't opened a ton of new stores it, you know revenue growth is nine percent over the last 10 years there are others that have grown faster than that they buy back a ton of stock um there's a few things that worry me a little bit one is the orientation towards are we going to become more of a sales type organization that's something to be careful about the other thing that worries me about this industry in general and this just gets into a whole debate and i'm sure the industry feels this is fine the length of the loans has gotten longer and longer i'm not sure if i, I am i think short-term car loans make sense i don't know when you're talking this is true throughout all car loans. I don't know when you're talking about really long-term loans if that's a great idea. I don't know if it matters that much with prime type customers and with dealers who are going to take a trade in into another car and keep move, you know, keep you churning that way. I don't know if it makes a huge difference. But when you're doing like really providing this is your car to get to work and stuff, um, I don't know if it makes the most sense. And it does worry me over time taking the risk of a loan that's that long. When this business model started. It was basically, uh, you pay us, you know, this is buy here, pay here was the original model. So you come to the lot and that's where you pay and stuff. So they sell you the car that, I mean that you buy the car there and then you show up and you, you pay your loan and you do it with your paycheck every two weeks, basically. When it started, it was basically take a car. You can buy a cheap car, an older car at a high interest rate. Yes. But divided into basically like 24 payments over a year. 
So you, you're paying that car fast, paying it down fast. It has to be a really cheap car versus your income to be able to afford this and all that. Well, we've gone from 12 months in the very beginning of this industry to 30 months not that long ago, and CarMart was below other people. And now we're talking like 40 months and things, and, and some go further than that. I am worried about those two aspects. That's all that I'll say. Um, however, you know, some of the things going on with the economy right now are not so bad for a company like this. Car prices are up. Inflation is not a terrible thing for them. Um, maybe a too good labor market isn't bad for them. Because remember, their, their, their borrowers are in a serious, um, they're seriously marginal borrowers. So they're hurt particularly bad when bad things happen in their town's economy and stuff. So, you know, a strong labor market, strong used car prices, ample credit, these are all things that would be great for CarMart. Um, however, competition is bad, and if it's great for CarMart, it's probably great for a lot of their competitors too. So those are the concerns that I have. I would watch the length of the loans. That's the thing that worries me. And, and just so people understand, why are they lengthening the loans? So this is common sense stuff, but they want to divide it up into equal payments that someone can afford. So what they want to do is they want to look at your paycheck and say, what can you afford? How little can you put down as a down payment? It is low. You know, we're talking about sometimes down payments of 7% on a car that's already well worth less than other cars. You could be buying an eight, nine-year-old car and putting 7% down payment on it. This is not a large down payment. So your equity, your skin in the game is minimal. Um, you really want to have a car though obviously, but that's what's really keeping you making these payments. And then um, they have to figure out a way so that the car doesn't um, cost you too much when broken down into the payments. Now, the problem that you've seen, right, let's say used car prices, new prices on cars and stuff, let's say they go up 30%, right? Well, what did wages go up last year for people? For some, it might have been three. For some, it might have been five. But no one was it as much as used car prices. They got to finance the whole car. So the problem that they have is that means you have to extend the term of it to pay it off over longer to get the payments down to the same level. Because there's not enough headroom to ever ask someone to make one and a half times greater payment in these categories. It's not like a prime uh, borrower on a car. So they have to keep extending it. And at some point you're selling people five to whatever year old cars and saying you're paying them off over five years or something, at which point, you know, like what if there's mechanical failure? They don't have cash on hand to pay for mechanical failure. You know, do you see different things in your default rates and do you get more cars coming back to you in worse shape and in war you know, and stuff like that. So those are the concerns, but it's cheap. And the business has been great over time. Uh, do Are you, you surprised the that the stock isn't up more? Yes. You could get the full report at Focus Compounding. I wrote it up again on Focus Compounding. So I did Focus Compounding on the report a long time ago. So that's a report that's, whatever, five years old or something now. But then a few years ago, three years ago or something maybe, I forget. It got to a price that I thought was interesting. It's before COVID. so um, And I wrote it up again at that point. And we're probably not you know, tremendous amounts above where it was then. So it went up to a hundred after that write up. Probably we're probably at a hundred again, you know, it's back to the level. It was not that long before COVID. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, can you look at the quick FS for it? The way I would recommend valuing it, uh, but balance sheet will be fine. We can do a quarterly balance sheet is. So I've historically suggested valuing this company differently than other people do. 
I suggest valuing it based on the uh, loan book. So if you see, they have accounts receivable 753 million. Now, they have debt, but that's a normal part of the business and you gotta accept that. So I'm gonna give you a price when looking at this to understand that there's 324 million in debt, right? And then they have some, uh, there's also, that's about it. So there's quite a lot of debt right now on it. Um, so you're buying something that's leveraged up where you're, but essentially what you're buying is that loan book of 753 million. Um, oh, and that's a net number. There's a huge provision for losses. Um, so if we look at the um, overview, we can see what it's at. Yeah. So um, what's the market cap on it? 681 million. So previously I had suggested that I thought it was attractive when you could get a market cap, but you have to be careful of the leverage. You have to keep in mind the leverage, whether it's more or less than usual. But if your market cap is less than your receivables in this case, I know it's a weird way of thinking about it, but if you're paying less than a dollar for the loan book at the way that they've stated it, so on a net basis, I think that's attractive because I think that they can grow that book or give you a return in some form, grow it per share is what matters by about 15% a year. So I do think it's a leverage return. So I got to warn people, we just saw they're using a ton of debt, you know, half of that, um, not half, but close to it, 40% or something of that loan book is financed with debt, not with your equity. So that's how they're getting the return. But I wouldn't be surprised if they can get you a 15% return on their loan book. Because what they do is as they get, as it throws off profits and things, so they try to grow it as much as possible, but as it throws off profits, they then use that and buy back stock. If you go to the um, cash flow statement and the income statement on a quarter uh, annual basis, you could see their aggressive stock buybacks over mm-hmm. time. Now, if they did not buy back their stock, would you think differently about how yes, to value it? Yes, because asset growth would have to be too high. See, the only way you can get a 15% return on a loan book on which you don't pay meaningful dividends or stock buybacks is you have to grow the loan book by 15% a year. If you're growing your loan book by 15% a year, think how quickly that means we're doubling it You know, each decade or so. We're, we're quintupling. So is that I mean, scary in itself or what? Yeah, I mean, it works for a while. It's great when it's a $10 million company. Mm-hmm. You know, the first 10 years you can expand in Arkansas, the next 10 years in the Southeast, the next. But it's quickly you'd have a problem. This company's only in a small number of states. Um, so you would grow too big. And they've managed to keep it from doing that by doing a lot of stock buybacks, a lot. If you look at net issuance of common stock over the last 10 years. Yeah, you could just, we could actually look at their uh, share count too. It's we can gone, do that too. It's gone almost halved i mean from 10 million to 7 million mm-hmm. but the other way is if you look at that cash flow so just um so my point is like see in 2017 20 so this is a particularly tough time 2017 2018 i would say it was very competitive it was some of the worst i ever saw for how bad the underwriting stand in that middle part of the is what i'm talking about so you know for maybe 2016 2018 i don't know exactly but it had gotten better before COVID, but it was the worst underwriting I'd seen from competitors and whatever. Everyone was making too many car loans to at just not good price, not good. The risk return was not good and people were going to lose money. And some of the big banks and things that got into this probably would have lost money. Now, of course, they'll be fine because if they managed to get through it this long, then, you know, they had the recovery in the car prices and the stimulus and fast growth. But absent that, they would have been in trouble. If, if say, a recession had hit in 2019 or something, you would have seen some bad defaults. Um... But anyway, in just those two years, they did 62 million in buybacks. 
the three years, let's say it was three years, um, you're talking about numbers that are now getting close to 90 million or something. We just said the loan book at present is 750. Well, it would have to be 840 if they hadn't done those buybacks. Otherwise, your return on equity and stuff goes down. Mm -hmm. So anything that isn't a buyback to you would have to go into the loan book. So I like when they say, okay, we can't sell more to make more loans that make sense. Let's buy back stock. Let's keep doing that. I think that's a great idea. They pay little in dividends, right? And in fact, I don't think they've paid any dividends. Have they ever had a dividend? I don't think they no. had a regular dividend. So they've never even done a special dividend, which I like. Uh, they issued a lot of debt recently, but that's because they grew a lot. I, there are a lot of things I like about this company, if I'm being honest. I mean, there are a lot of things about how they run it is how... I wouldn't be in this business, <laughs> but if I had to be in the buy here, pay yeah. here, I would run it like Carmart runs it. So let's say the individual is an investor. What are some things that you would watch for with this company? Too aggressive on sales instead of credit quality. There's a trade-off between sales and credit quality. Yeah. So um, remember that it's not, let's put you in a car. It's let's put a loan on our books. So you put someone in the car, you're putting a loan on the books. Is that the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. The decision is really let's put a loan on our books. So let's, we need to be careful about that and very careful about incentives for the company. You'd never want to have incentives that are like car dealer type incentives for this company. Um, and then the length of the term. Yeah. I think at some point they're too, it, I just think it's too long at some point. Mm -hmm. And that's a bigger issue of affordability and stuff for, for lower income people buying cars in the u.s yeah even I mean, you before, know why they're sending it yeah even before if you look um even before covid used car prices had actually been inflating at a higher rate than the overall economy and at an unacceptable rate versus the wages of of the lowest uh, wage groups and the reason why that was happening you'd argue like the fed would say probably well it's not real inflation because they're getting better i don't disagree with that they're safer, they're nicer, they're whatever. But they're a way for someone to get from their home to the factory that they work at in these rural cities. You know, that's what it is. And the cost of transportation was going up faster than their wages. And it had been for 30 or 40 years. And it had been since almost the early 80s, I think. So because of that, slightly faster, but because of that, they become less affordable, which means the loans have to be longer and longer. And at some point that doesn't work. So, you know. It's a bit bigger macro thing, but it, people who are in other credit groups and stuff and buying new cars and things, I think have not realized how difficult it has been in terms of affordability of very basic cars for people who don't have much access to credit. It's been bad. So that's how these companies make a lot of money, but it's also just the asset they've been um, financing has just gone up a lot versus wages. And I don't think that you can... I don't think you can just keep making it, okay, we'll make it a seven-year loan, an eight-year loan. I don't think it's like doing a 30-year home loan. In my DMs, Activision, ATVI, your old friend. Yeah, they've had some, do we call it scandal? Do we call it being in the press? I don't yeah. know. They've had some stuff. Let's see. What's the, oops. What's I don't the, know if it's as bad as um, doing. They put out a whole thing I read about, um, You know, I read some of their comments from about things about the uh, the um, what would you call it? Um, gender discrimination, sexual harassment, say culture, um, culture. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not looking for the right word here about that. But yeah, a workplace that is 
not accommodating to women. Yeah, sure. Sexist. I guess. So the issues here are like having to pay, having to change work uh, rules in the place, having to pay um, fines. A competitor of theirs paid a much larger fine recently. Actually, a record fine. But uh, wait, are they owned by Tencent? It's Riot Games. So is Mm. is Tencent on Riot? Maybe. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Yeah. They paid a hundred million dollar. Um, California, obviously. Activision, abortion is in California, too. It's dropping the bucket yeah, for if, them. Yeah, if these companies need to move out of California, if they don't want to get these laws, have to pay these amounts. You don't want to have offices in California. but Activision Blizzard, not it higher than its COVID peak. You can look at it on no, QuickFS. No, so Activision historically was very expensive. I think it's not crazy expensive now. EV to sales five times, 10-year mm-hmm. media margins on EBIT, 27 or 28%. Uh, 10-year Kager on revenue, 6%. EPS has a 24% 10-year Kager. EV to free cash flow is 16 and a half times. Right. So the stock's not done well, but that's because of the stock was too expensive. If we look back, so you see 2016's to today, right? Um, The stock's not so great. I mean, well, 2016, I guess, is okay, but then it went up quite a bit there and then it dove down and now it's kind of done it again but if we look at the results here if we look at the ratios comparing to some of the things we were talking about before we have not very strong growth um but we have very nice margin development you know gross and operating margin with some moderate growth in those years since so yeah gross margin has improved operating margin has improved yep improved a little bit each year but it adds up to a lot um the business is changing in certain ways. So growth prospects from when I bought this thing, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, are not good. This is not a growth industry. Honestly, gaming is not a growth industry. What was the market cap you bought it at? I'm trying to remember. It might, in a few hundred million, 300 million, something. It merged, though, with Blizzard. Mm-hmm. So it did expand a bit. It bought back stock after that, but it did merge for that. But yeah, it, yeah, it was about a hundred... The market cap's probably up 200 times, but the stock is only up 100 and some times at its peak. Yeah, 160 times at its peak, I think we figured. And now it's down from that peak, so, you know. Um, but a lot of things that I like to see there, I think that the, uh, the... But there is a concern about when you have a scandal like this that you change the company too much, obviously. You know, that, that was my concern with the Chipotle, you know. When people had the, when they had the food, now theirs was a little, a uh, worse. Um, Chipotle's. Chipotle agreed to a deferred prosecution, okay. which is a criminal. Yeah, uh, it's very rare for a corporation to agree to deferred <laughs> prosecution. Deferred prosecution. Um, it also was its customers that Chipotle was harming, mm-hmm. and not its employees. But gaming, you don't think is a growth industry anymore. No, I, I mean, it, it's, you know, I, I think it will grow, but if you're thinking that you're going to get overall in gaming better than nominal GDP or entertainment type growth things and stuff, no, parts of entertainment grow faster than others. I think it can take some share from other parts of entertainment, but no, overall, no. Look at the free cash flow though. That throws off a good amount of cash, this business. Yeah. 
it throws off a lot of cash. Although you do have to acquire something every once in a while. They did make an acquisition for a lot there, but uh, mostly not. Look, acquisitions, they don't normally acquire. So I guess if you're looking at studios or theaters, you're thinking about more so movie theaters, you're thinking about like the movie slate. Right. How much of that sort of happens with like a company like Activision? So less so now. So they make more money. Um, it's different and they don't like, and you'd have to read their presentations and 10Ks and things to understand, but they do more through in-game revenue. DLC added on things to it, games that have only slight updates um, versus big launches of things. So a big launch of a thing would be like um, some other publishers. You know, you, they do it still too, but big, big examples would be like uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 or whatever. Love that right? game. That is a thing that they work on for 10 years mm -hmm. or whatever. It wasn't 10 years, but it was a lot of years. Um, they launch it you know, many years till they do something again like that. And it... Um, it sells a huge amount the first week, actually. It actually probably makes, it does make more than like a Spider-Man or something in the first weekend. And the problem is they don't come back the next weekend, the week after that, but still it makes a ton of money. So you sell half a billion dollars worth of it right away. Um, these companies, Activision and some of the others have changed and become more predictable in some ways and probably easier to run in that you just maintain a franchise that you have, whether it's Call of Duty or World of Warcraft or whatever. And if you maintain that in an effective way and monetize in an effective way, um, there are more incremental improvements over time that you have to do in bringing people back to it and everything. It's a little bit different. Um, I do think that that has more durability and stuff and that investors like it better than coming out with different games which they feel is very hit driven and all of that um but honestly the the financial activisions have been better than other companies in terms of how consistent it's been you could see uh so like the other big ones would be like take two especially and ea um which are publicly traded um they probably have a little more fluctuation in their results over a full 10-year period um so uh, all of them, though, are more palatable now to investors. EA, definitely, I would say focus. Well, I don't know if I should say that. I, I have the feeling that they m wanted to make more money from uh, in-game stuff and things earlier. But I don't know if that's true anymore. It seems like the push has gone towards that. Mm-hmm. Well, even smaller publishers and things actually make a lot of money through DLC and stuff to a small group. They know that they can launch regular in a series get even just a, few, a couple hundred thousand games sold but then if they can get them to buy add-ons to it and stuff you can actually get people to pay two hundred dollars for something that you're selling allegedly for 50 or whatever mm -hmm. but with the, all the add-ons over time it's going to be sure. that yeah so it's more attractive to investors now so investors think of it better um that way um and also i didn't compare it to chipotle for no reason if we type in chipotle actually this might help their market caps were quite similar recently. Yeah. So they're basically valued the same. Chipotle makes a million dollars in gross, a billion dollars in gross profit recently and a few hundred million in operating profit, though they've had a better most recent year. And, you know, when we compare that with Activision and stuff, that's probably not fair. But, in, and then you could look at like cash flow, for instance. Um, you know, so you're paying, what would you say? three times more it depends on what measure you're using but i'm saying two to three times more in general for chipotle than for activision um i don't know if that's right 
you know, and of course you have more choices than just Chipotle and Activision, but you know, at this point with how developed Activision is, EA, those sorts of things with how diversified they are, is it really a lot riskier than a concept like, like a Chipotle or something? I, I th- think not really. Um, something like Chipotle can recover more from where it was, maybe, maybe has more growth possibilities, but again, it's in a no growth industry. Uh, not no growth, but won't grow faster than the economy, but it could gain market share. It could do better. So if you like it better, you can own it. Um, and the economics of both are, are very good. Um, the economics of AAA are not as good as Activision, but Activision can't just open another store. So it probably ends up having to buy more things and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So do you like Activision? At this price? It's the first price that I've seen recently where I would say it is very reasonable. And people ask for like, what about a company that's over, what, 10 billion? Sometimes mm-hmm. some people have asked for it's, it's in. It would be one that I would consider... And I could never have said that before. I thought it was always very expensive. Um, I also, actually, some of the other ones, it's not valued that differently than some of the other. Um, I mean, it is valued that differently. I don't think on a market cap basis, what's EA's market cap now? What did it say? Yeah. yeah. 38, 38 billion. And Activision's at, what do we say, 50 or so? And, yeah. t- and Take-Two is surprisingly high for what it had been historically uh you know ttwo i think is the ticker think hopefully yep yeah 20 20 billion yeah so i mean i guess you could get take two and ea together for what activision is Uh so maybe that's that's not fair but i I do think that historically activision have been more predictable and stuff i don't know if they'll continue versus ea and who's running it i did like the people running activision better as um capital allocation things in the past um and yeah but some of the others have very good intellectual property and stuff. I wouldn't say that Activision necessarily has better than those. But Activision historically been more focused on like returns to shareholders and stuff. Ally Financial. Have you looked at this bank before? I don't really have an opinion about it. Um, you know the history of Ally and stuff. I'll just give it maybe in the business description. If you let's see what it says. It operates through four segments, automotive finance operations, insurance operations, mortgage finance operations, and corporate finance operations. Yeah. So uh, the last statement is that the company was formerly known as GMAC, and it was founded in 1914 as the um, captive finance part of um, GM. So it provided all the financing for GM stuff, and it was built up for that as part of the the strategy that GM had as being, GM was very early in the credit as a way of growing your your sales as an automaker and then 10 years ago or whatever it changed its name to ally after the financial crisis right it's certainly doesn't seem expensive right about book value it's about book value p is very reasonable return on equity is kind of low net interest margin is in line with banks generally sort of right now but probably kind of low for this kind of finance operation, I would say. So 3.3%, you're going to see a lot of banks that we would look at, everything from, you know, CNI lending to thrifts to whatever now, you know, are 3% plus or minus uh, 0.3%, maybe 0.5%. You know, you're not going to see much lower than 2.5% and interest margin are going to see much higher than 3.5%. There are some banks that are different. Um and then they normally have higher uh, charge-offs then. So let's see. 
it has what does it have on its reserves its reserves are quite high now yeah 2.8 Loan reserves to loans are surprisingly yeah, high oh because we're seeing last year 86 yeah, so, so covid yeah i was gonna say it's covid yeah you could see that even in the loans to deposits that ratio came down because they probably right. did ppp or took in a lot of deposits so it normally keeps at one percent um one percent might be a little low to be 100 percent honest uh versus what some other banks do because the truth is that some banks, which seem to be in lower categories of lending losses, ultimately also reserve at one. One's a very common percentage to reserve at. I'm not saying if it's right or wrong, but I just mean it, but it might be somewhat under-reserved compared to other banks. And then you're, um, they're probably operating at slightly higher, maybe 20% higher leverage ratio in terms of their, their um loan uh in terms of their assets to equity basically mm-hmm. their earning assets to equity so that's not bad i mean compared to what these things used to be before the financial crisis this is not bad it's a little higher than on both these measures that i mean not now because obviously with covid but they probably released those reserves right at some Imagine, point yeah. yeah so but when they were reserving one percent you know that might that's not overly conservative i would say and then um they uh, were operating at like 12 times or something before. But, you know, recently that's not the case. They're operating more at 10. Mm -hmm. And do we see what loan loss reserves? Yeah, it's actually they've kept it. Most banks reserved and then they kind of... The big ones. Have you looked at some small ones? Oh, there's some small ones that are interesting. So some took a huge reserve for COVID and then did not release it. Mm. So like there was one bank, you know, I won't say the name of it and stuff, but let's say it's a $300 million bank, but basically has $30 million dollars a 300 million, I'm sorry, I mean $300 million market cap, not asset value. Um, so like a 300 million market cap thing and people are looking and going, oh, you know, I'm getting a book value or whatever. Actually, they have 30 million in reserves that are that are not, uh, that were added for COVID that they never took back. Oof. You know? Mm-hmm. So you're getting it for much less. I mean, it's reserves that are not real reserves. I mean, look, when you buy the equity, reserves that should be there that aren't are really adding to your price. Mm-hmm. And on the reverse, reserves that they have but they shouldn't have are actually um, should be counted with your equity in terms of what you're buying. Is there a reason why they haven't released them yet? Yeah. Why not? Why, I mean, why? No, I. <laughs> well, I mean, most banks that we follow they won't, have, they will not. They, they can't lose that trust. I mean, it it doesn't make sense for the loans that they're making. It just doesn't make sense. No, I think they took the reserve. Why put it back? It probably help some smooth earnings in the future mm-hmm. to have the reserve like that um they have that in the toolbox they also like didn't you know like they'd historically increased their dividend and they stopped for a little while and now they'll increase it but they don't mind i mean they're not run, they're, like they don't i mean it's a little complicated situation but anyway management doesn't really own a lot of the bank and stuff and they have certain incentives probably to run a little more conservatively but with the really big banks, the analysts will go after you and be like, you know, you got to do this. And they have, what's my prediction for the EPS? Are you going to release these reserves and whatever? Um, so anyway, so that's good. I mean, that makes it cheaper than it appears to be. So all I say is that what I just said about the past is not correct. They probably could operate with a bit more leverage than they have now. And um, they pr- probably reserves are good that way. So it might be cheaper than it appears. I don't have a strong opinion about Ally and stuff, but I... You know, um, if it has the same price to book now as it did a couple years before COVID, it's cheaper now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our friend Thomas Brazil sent uh, a handful okay. of stocks. Mm, let's look at E. 
and Z. Enzo Biochem. That's probably not one that I would know anything about. Is this a got some sizzle with it, Thomas? It has revenue. Uh, Did you notice that? It actually yeah. has quite a lot of revenue. It's jumped for a lot. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah, life science company. Yeah, my investment in um, medical stuff is really not extended beyond about urine and blood testing. I think. Yeah. Have I invested in anything that's not... You know, this company, though, Freeman Industries, Industries yep. FRD. Mm-hmm. Steel. Yeah, it's done well. The mm-hmm. stock. The stock's... No, the business and is the business, amazing, well, I'm just too. saying the stock's I mean, done amazing over the yeah, past couple so of years. Yeah, just so we could show you. They earned... Talk about payback periods. They earned enough in one quarter uh-huh. to pay you all back a lot for... Okay, so the stock is... Oh, it's oh, back it's down a bunch? a little bit, yeah. Oh, okay. So that's interesting. Actually, it's done quite a bit. I mean, it's still up a huge amount. Let's, yeah. let's not get ahead of ourselves. Just for people not seeing the stock chart, what did it go? We can see it. So it went from I, a low in COVID over It was basically a net, net bucks. and I said, yes. this is the kind of net net that you want to own. Something will happen and, and whatever. I'm not saying that you should own it, and it could have just as easily gone for five or 10 years without having a hiccup that gives it value. But something did happen with steel prices, obviously with COVID, it went Gone shooting crazy. up. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is you're buying at a huge discount to inventory back then. So anyway, it went from four to some terrific price. Yeah, look at it. So their operating profit went from negative three million the previous year to 16 million. Yes. Last year. And actually, I believe they earned. And revenue went down too. Yes. But that's they couldn't sell as much stuff in mm-hmm. actual units. Yeah. But the, um, the, so if you add it up, actually i think i did at one time they earned more in one year than they had in like the previous eight or nine years you know but in 2012 they had earned 12 so not the previous 10 years so anyway they aren't they earned about as much in one year as you do this is a cyclical of the company as they earn in all other of the 10 years which creates a problem because the stock um returns even if they're okay over the long term it pays a dividend it's always paid a dividend um but even if they're okay over the long term when you look at it, you think, oh, this stock does okay if I own it for decades, you know, but actually like all your return in the stock is in a year or two of Mm -hmm. being in in the right years, you know? Um, So let's look at the balance sheet. Quarterly. Okay. So the important number with this company is inventories. Right. Receivables are worth what they're worth. Inventories, we don't know if they will be worth what they're worth. You could buy inventories and then it turns out that you have to sell at an actual loss, negative gross profit. That can happen with a company like this. I know that's not something people are used to seeing, but it can happen because if steel prices go down 100%, even if you sell it with a markup versus you know um, market prices of it, then you're losing money. Yeah, listen to our inflation podcast we did a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So... Um, Let's see. So the total current assets, okay. And then, yeah, so you have, what is that, 60 million, more than 60 million in net current assets. Basically, you're, it's, we can think of it as being completely leveraged to inventory, inventory 68 million. So that's probably the way. So basically, we could think of it as if you're buying a business that's clean from everything else, where you basically you're buying the inventory. 
Um, that's your speculation on it. And you're getting everything. Everything else can basically cover your current assets and stuff. It can basically cover all their liabilities. Now they're doing a big, I haven't checked in the last quarter or something, but they were doing a big plant planned, uh, extension thing planned down in, uh, Southeast Texas. Is it near, I don't remember if it's near Longview or Lone Star or one of those places, but anyway, it, Far away from here, east of here, uh, they're doing. Uh, there was plans for a big extension of a plant thing, um, new capex, which is unusual. Let's look at the market cap. Yeah, sixty-four million dollar market cap. So, I mean, if you want to make a bet on steel, this is a great way to do it. On uh, future steel prices, because you're basically rising. buying that inventory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I would not. I'm not, there's probably no, no stock. No, nothing we'll be able to short in the stock anyway. But I was going to mention to people, don't short this stock as a bet against steel prices because it's that's not such a good idea because it is basically operating not far from being a net-net. Uh, actually, yeah, we just did it. So the balance sheet says what? Uh, net current assets, 112. Total liabilities, 57. Right. It's right borderline net-net. Mm-hmm. Again, when it was a net-net before, I said... It's a you know speculation on it, yeah. but whatever. But this is the kind of thing that could happen. It's the kind of thing that makes, if you can stomach it, and he can, the person asking this question, a lot of people can't, to have something in your portfolio that might do nothing or go down for three, four years or whatever, and then go up triple in a year. This is the kind of thing to do. Because actually, in some ways, this is almost a better net net. It's very healthy, very strong balance sheet, whatever. But like Berkshire Hathaway, the textile company that, that Buffett bought into, it um, is somewhat cyclical, which actually means that it pops sometimes and then you can sell it off when it does because you, you know, in a good year for a cyclical industry, you make a bunch of money. It's not a terrible company. It's a terrible, terrible industry. Mm-hmm. But like the actual business model of what it's doing, it's doing the best it can. Um, it, it's more consistent in earning some profit than I think people realize. It just earns poor returns on capital in all years except years in which uh, pricing for steel is good, which means short supply. So you have to make money in short supply. It's a classic commodity industry that way. It does not earn it does not earn economic profits except when supply is tight, and then it earns you know uh, an absolute bonanza. But in all other years, it earns generally a technically positive accounting profit that is not sufficient to attract capital, right? It earns less than its cost of capital, mm-hmm. basically less than what equity investors want in all other years. What's it say the long-term return on invested capital is like 4%, right? Then you don't use any leverage, but 4%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you want a bond type return in most years that occasionally could give Gets you- a kicker. Well, in the kicker years, it's 20% or more mm-hmm. that it jumps up to, which doesn't sound that high, but remember you're buying at discounts to book and stuff. so. If a bond is suddenly yielding 20% and you bought it at half of uh, its uh, par value, then, you know, you, it's quite a bond. Yeah, let's look at what the stock did. It's always interesting, though. It's like, did the stock actually react to it? I, It did. I mean, let's see. It is fascinating the degree to which it's dropped. Uh-huh. I mean, it's basically back to being like a net-net almost. Yeah. Now, of course, way bigger. has way more... Um, even the same assets yeah, on profit. books are at higher. Yeah, but like if you sold steel and then you bought steel, then you're going to see that it looks like inventory surge, right? Because inventories, yeah, they were half of that a couple quarters ago. Yeah. Well, let's see. If you wanted to speculate in a commodity thing, buying a net net is a better way of doing it. Part 
a more sensible way, I mm-hmm. would say. It's at least a way not to lose a ton of money usually. We're going to do another snap judgments okay, and we'll, we'll work many. through his. Yeah. Well, we got to get, there's right. a lot of, this is probably the most, uh, okay. so many tweets and we're, yeah. we're running out of time. So we'll answer like a couple more. Um, uh, let's see. So PX, that was P10 and see longtime listener knows he said andrew jeff is bound to be turned off by the short history of company so we pxers will need you to speak up on the long history of the underlying asset managers the sweet margins the assets being under investment contracts and the advantage business model so jeff knows about p10 i know it exists a little bit yeah Yeah. yeah, yeah. but if you he knows that uh short history yes so when we look at quick fs it's always a problem very short history yeah the history is useless here. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, You've talked about this business model before. No, it's not a bad business model. No, Jeff likes no. it. Yeah. No, it's not Predictability of it. Mm-hmm. No, it's not bad. Uh, so do they give the business description, but the business description won't really tell us what their real model is, will it? It says, together with its subsidiaries, provides private market solutions for the alternative asset management industry in the United States. Okay. Basically, they're buying out asset management firms. Correct. And then basically separating the streams, right? Yes. Yeah. So they're keeping the incentive comp compensation uh, for themselves. The managers? Yes. And selling the management fees to the acquirer. The more predictable part. Yeah. So the 1% of AUM or whatever right. it is. That sort of thing, which makes it more into like um, sort of like a mutual fund uh, type stream or something like that. So, and mutual fund companies are very cheap but I'm not buying them because they keep losing assets to other things like alternative investment stuff yeah. and things like that. So there's lots of that people can ask about things that look cheap on AUM, but the AUM's going down every year and seems to keep going down. Even in cases where they make the good returns, it's still coming out. So, yeah, I mean, it's certainly a way, maybe it's more of them like a modern day way to invest. Like you could have a long time ago in the companies that ran mutual funds. And things like that, because that growth period is over that way of being able to do that. Um, It is definitely about the founders, right? They've created a lot of value in a short amount of time. And they're also involved in another thing that I looked at, too. Um, What's the market gap on this? $214 million. Is that correct? They do seem very... um, financially oriented in terms of returns for the stock and stuff so they have shown sensitivity to certain financial considerations that a lot of um managers of companies wanted so basically they're trying to create value you know compound the stock and stuff over time that's clearly what the strategy is um this is one where you have to like talk to management and stuff and you have to believe in them headquartered in dallas texas i do know that let's go camp out yeah we'll wait by the door (sighs) This is being recorded in Dallas, Texas, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, um, but I think so. So that's the way you have to get comfortable with it. Yeah, the financial results and stuff can't tell you anything about it. Sure. Let's see. But yeah, I, I mean, I know the company and stuff. What would you want to know for management? Just what they're like as people. Got it. This is an interesting one. SMIT. New management took over in 2020 and bought an overcapacity ice cream factory. I've looked Plus at it. Plus brand 
at a cheap price. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, stuff. the brand's yeah. Ample Hills, right? And it was sold at Disney World for a while, mm. um, things like that. It did buy an overcapacity thing. I think. Did we ever talk about co-packing stuff? I don't know if we did. I'm not sure. It's one of the things that drives me crazy about businesses like this, that they buy more capacity than they, they always do this. They buy capacity that they shouldn't buy instead of co-packing and stuff to get to a certain size, and then you can buy it. Even things like Boston Beer did that mistake in their early years of buying kind of excess um, stuff to be able to actually do it themselves. Um, and it has a few locations, right? In um, like Brooklyn and stuff like that. I think that it has a few physical locations. Yeah. I am worried about the fact that it uh, has way too much. Uh, yeah, it's way over capacity. So uh, this was a, I don't know what results you're seeing financially. Uh, this was a completely different company. Then it bought something that has nothing to do with it. So if I'm right about this, the the real company is Ample Hills. I hope I'm getting that right. Um, ice cream. It, it was a totally, what did they give you for the business subscription stuff? Because it was a totally unrelated company, which I was also familiar with. It designs, manufactures, and sells tests and yeah. measurement products no, worldwide. It do that. It uh, does ice cream, yeah. holds various, that part. Yeah. The ice cream segment manufactures, wholesales, and retails ice creams and ice cream cakes, as well as sells through its website. Yeah. I, I've tried to look into it and stuff, find out about the ice cream and all that. It seems like a... Not, yeah, through its Ample Hills yeah, creamer brand. It doesn't seem like a bad business. There's lots of uh, goodwill for that brand. Would love to learn about the brand, the ice cream, whatever. Didn't Bob Iger do something with the ice cream? Didn't he say it was his favorite ice cream? Because it was at Disney World. Yeah. No, uh, that's why he put put it there. Got it. Okay. I think it ended up at Disney because of Iger. Yeah, I, I remember this company. Yeah. Um, but I don't like the... I. I <laughs> How do I put this? You don't like management. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't don't like like that exactly what was just described in that tweet. If they get up to capacity and stuff, it's wonderful. So this is all a bet on can they grow their volumes enough to make this make sense. Uh, I do worry about that. I think that you have way too much um, overhead and you're going to have overhead cost absorption and stuff that's tough unless you grow it. And you're growing it with thin capital, right? Um, like we could look at the balance sheet and stuff. But I don't know that you can afford to lose money every year for a while while you grow it. If we look at the quarterly balance sheet, we could get an idea. Um, I don't know if the plan was originally like, let's do something where we do issue stock or rights offering or something. You know, this happened more during the SPAC stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, total current assets are, is this right, $6 million? Yeah. And um, total current liabilities are four, so you have some current assets, but total liabilities are 17. Um, you've never made money. Your primary asset is the factory, which you're not producing enough yourself in. So it's a, it's a question of how do you get it up fast enough, the volume, to make it make sense there. There's other companies like this that I've looked at and stuff over the years and tried to go, okay, there's an interesting brand here. There's a Jones Soda reads mm. um some of those kinds of things i've looked at and been like okay well if, if their sales keep growing at this rate and i'm talking about like 10 years ago at this rate considering the advantages you'll get from this this will be successful but then if your sales top out or start to decline or anything there's no way out of the spiral um because it just doesn't make sense economically to be producing at a factory you own that's that much under volume of what you need which is why people use co-packing and stuff like that where you're basically owning a brand and stuff, but you're paying significant fees and things to have someone else actually do the, the real work of um, making the product there. And you can do that with ice cream. 
Last one. It, yeah, it'll pay off though if it if it grows those volumes fast enough to make to like um, use up that capacity. But I, I'm betting on how quickly does a niche ice cream brand grow? You know, like. Hmm. Uh, it's not gonna be quick of us. Okay, let's pick one more. Okay. We're gonna have to come back to this thread. So if you okay. want to us to go over one just come back here um let's see a l s n allison transmission holdings oh, yeah have you looked at this company i'm familiar with it in general in general together with its subsidiaries designs manufactures and sells commercial and defense fully of automatic transmissions for medium and heavy duty commercial vehicles um You know, Current PE 10 times, EU to free cash flow 12.6 times. Margins have gone up. 10 year median margins on gross profit 47%. This return on capital looks a bit kind of cyclical or just more over the place. <laughs> yeah, we heard what it made. Uh-huh. We know it was yeah. cyclical. <laughs> um, yeah. So you're basically, I mean, it's a very important part, but you're basically making an auto part. Um, Revenue at growth actually was fine because this is including 2020, right? It's including the 23% dip in the number we're seeing, I yeah. believe, on Quick mm-hmm. So it says it grew 1% a year, but actually grew faster than that up until the, you know, it went from 2.1 billion to 2.6 billion, 2.7 billion actually at the peak. Um, so it declined a bit from there. And let's look at the balance sheet because there's something that worries me a little bit. Let's see if this is correct. Yeah. So I saw assets to equity. I went, uh, um, yeah. So debt is about the same as sales Hmm. and 50% gross margin. Okay. They have deferred revenue, actually significant amount of deferred revenue. There's some sort of backlog. Ton of goodwill too. Yeah. But it all predates. I mean, it hasn't. So basically there's a $2 billion and the other intangible assets from like 10 years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not acquiring things now. Um, yeah, the long-term debt, I guess, is my concern here. But obviously, that's a financial engineering decision because if we look, what's retained earnings? Yeah, it's negative. A billion. Yeah, negative. So as a result, um, if we look at the, let's see, if we look at the balance sheet, we will see that, um, yeah, so there's positive equity, but that's only because of the original um, paid-in capital. The retained no earnings have been retained. So let's look at cash flow. And look on an annual basis. Okay. All right. Very good. What we're seeing there. So in the last few years, they are pretty consistently making, um, you know, what, 500 to, well, one year is 400 some. But, you know, probably closer to 500, 450 to 600 million in free cash flow probably. Uh, some stock compensation, but insignificant. And they were using that to buy back stock, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of it. And pay dividends along the way. And pay dividends. Okay. So let's look at their price now. It's quite reasonably priced. Not on book, but again, there was financial engineering, so that doesn't matter. Uh, EV to sales 2.7. Well, that's not fair, though, because the actual EV Except is uh, 2. I'd say, what are we dealing with? 2.3. Time I can't do the math right now, but you know, two point three, two point four, something in the neighborhood of peak sales. 
um, which I think is the fair number because we don't know, but I'm assuming some, that 2020 COVID happened. You know, I don't think it normally mm-hmm. drops 23%, but maybe it would have, I don't know. Um, so 2.3, 2.4 times, and your operating margin is strong enough in almost all years that justifies that. So that's, you know, on a leverage basis, you're buying at 10 times pre-tax earnings, basically. I mean, I'm complicating this, but I'm saying take the debt, take the equity, put it together. Then you give them back the interest and the taxes, you know, so the the EV to EBIT basically, but I'm normalizing. So EV to EBIT, 10 times or less, um, which is not a bad price to pay. That's actually less. It means that if you operate with all equity, you'd be at less than 15 times PE. Now, obviously it's at what? 10 times PE or something, but it has debt. Mm-hmm. So it's a leverage number, but not a leverage number would be like 15 or something. So it seems very reasonably priced doing smart things. It was growing a little bit. So shares have dramatically gone down from 181 million in 2011 to 114 million in 2020. Yeah. I don't know a lot about this to be able to give you a lot of answers, but like if you were trying to find something to put in a value mutual fund or something, this is probably the kind of thing you from like a quantitative perspective. Well, even they're buying back stock, even with a business that they're in. I mean, we didn't mention and stuff, but right. I mean, they've been in this business for a hundred years or something. Um, it's not, I mean, I'm sure it'll change over time and whatever, but uh, yes, I'd rather that than, um, an upstart ice cream brand probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, now that the upstart ice cream brand could do great if it succeeds, but this probably is something, you know, we talk about LBOs and things. This is something you could put debt on. They have put debt on mm-hmm. it, um, that it's safe to do that. Uh, yeah. So I think, I mean, if we just like, for instance, you did the 10 year thing there. If you look at gross profit or something, how much has it varied? Like in the worst year, it's what? Well, yeah, 850 million. In the best year, it's one point, well, 1.4 billion was a really good year. Anyway, it's very more than I, it, that makes it sound like it's very more than it has. If you look at the video, very little variation in gross profit. And so that's the kind of thing that can be run right operationally, financially in a safe way, even though it seems somewhat cyclical. So with the right people applying the right sort of stuff to operations and to, you know, running it the right way in terms of costs and definitely running the right way in terms of buying back stock and things like that, it'll work out for you. I was going to say, can you just find out what their capital allocation strategy is? Maybe it's just to just be a cannibal and retire as much shares as possible. I guess to put it simply, what I'm saying is it already has debt. But what I would say is this is what you would do an LBO of. You Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. this is the kind of thing. Because it can take financial engineering and turn it into a lot of value. Um, and so that's, you know, because of the consistency over time and because of how much it generates in cash and all that. So if you did want something that constantly buys back stock and doesn't really pay down debt and stuff like that, this would be the right thing. You have to get in at a good price. But I said, I think it's 10 times normalized profit right now. Not like on leverage basis, EV to um, EBIT type basis. So that is a good price, you know, with today's tax rates and stuff, that's less than 15 times PE, which is fine. And so, yeah, I, especially in a market that's a little more expensive and stuff, it would seem logical. Mm-hmm. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. Um, go to my Twitter at focused compound. If you're listening and you haven't had a chance to tweet a stock, cause we are going to come back to this list 
next week and work through it at Focused Compound on Twitter. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We did use QuickFS in this episode, just like we do every episode, uh, because we use it every single day, Jeff. Yes. Uh, so go to QuickFS.net. And if you do sign up, tell them you came from Focus Compounding. Thanks so much for all the support. Give us a rating review. Five stars goes a long way. Hit that thumbs up button, and we'll see you in the next podcast.